in our lives in the world, we engage in innumerable activity, seeking the goals of our life, weaving a tapestry that ends up being the colorful display of who we are. Sometimes our goals seem to be aligned with one another, our spiritual goals aligned with our social goals, but our political goals not aligned with our financial goals, or our family goals aligned with our educational goals. And there's a whole array of competing voices in our minds, in our culture, saying, do this, don't do that. Try me, buy that. The culture we grow up in, the family we grow up in, the weather we grow up with, the government, the economic system, the teachers, our peers, all have an effect, a conditioning effect on how we choose to live our life. And by the time we reach this age, our pattern of relating to life is pretty fixed, pretty set, pretty clear. And sometimes that fixedness takes on a heaviness and a burdensomeness where the force of habit predominant, predominates, where we, even knowing that we want to and maybe should for our own betterment change, often find it difficult. Where our habitual reactions of liking and disliking are fixed, difficult to change. And sometimes we feel stuck with who we are. There are no shortages of teachers and guides and pundits of one sort or another pointing the way out of this uh, burden, out of this mess, out of this morass, out of this way that we would sometimes like to change. And the assumption behind all of their pointing and all of their recipes is that we can be happy, that we can find happiness. But ask yourself, as you look through your life that's brought you to this point, ask yourself, where is all this activity leading me? One of the women I teach with sometimes used an interesting quote in one of her talks. She said she read it. If you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. (laughs) If we don't know where we're going in life, we're right on track. (laughs) It's sometimes helpful to use a map in life, as it is in traveling from any point to any other. 
We've all had the experience of using maps, looking at maps, whether out of curiosity or need, looking to see where we are, where we've been, where we're going, what we can expect to see, the dangers, the sights, the route we'll take, possible dangers. There are many kinds of maps, road maps that show us Uh, the highways and byways, the fast ways, the slow ways, and the lanes to get from here to there. There's topographical maps. Show us the elevations we can go to or the depths that we might have to reach. There are weather maps showing us the daily condition of where we are, where we've been, where we're going. There are even soil maps Maps of the entire United States that indicate the type of soil in every location. Showing what can be supported there, whether it's buildings or corn. There are historical maps that tell us what happened here in order to make now look like it does, feel like it does. There are geologic maps Maps that reveal or show the deep structure that can't be seen with the eye directly, but can be felt. When we look at maps and when we study maps, we can get a tremendous amount of knowledge. We can see where we've been, where we're going, how to make the trip, ways to make the trip more comfortable quicker, safer. We can be better prepared for the conditions that we'll meet. We can travel with confidence. And there's still plenty of room for surprises. Traveling without maps, as you know, can be challenging, exciting, no doubt, but sometimes extremely frustrating, unnerving, confusing, unnecessarily difficult, possibly dangerous. But looking at maps only is only armchair traveling. We don't really see for ourselves what the terrain looks like. When we come on a retreat like this, we take the travel, we take the trip, we begin to walk or we continue to walk on this spiritual odyssey of awakening. And whether we know it or not, we use a map. It may be clear, it may not. It may be your own, it may be someone else's. But on this odyssey of awakening, meditation is our vehicle for discovery and look around to see your fellow traveling companions. It's helpful to ask yourself, where am I going? How do I get there? Where am I starting from? What can I expect on the journey? And what does the terrain look like between here and there? Lifetimes and lifetimes, eons and long times ago, 
There was a Buddha called Dipankara Buddha, long before the Buddha that we know, Gautama Buddha. And during that lifetime, there was an ascetic who one time saw this Dipankara Buddha. And he was so impressed by the demeanor and the radiance of this Dipankara Buddha that this ascetic Sumedha made a vow to this Buddha that someday he too wanted to become a Buddha. And the Dipankara Buddha uh, knew of that wish, the sincerity and integrity of that wish, and uh, acknowledged to that ascetic that indeed, in some future lifetime, he would become a Buddha. And lucky for us, he became a teaching Buddha, a Buddha who uh, undertook even maybe more lifetimes in order to cover the terrain of the spiritual journey more thoroughly, to be challenged by every possible uh, set of conditions in order to be able to more skillfully guide others. Some, some beings who attain Buddhahood don't go through that training and don't teach only a small handful of people uh, around them while they're alive. But lucky for us, Gautama Buddha was a teaching Buddha. And over the 45 years of his teaching and wandering around India, he taught all kinds of beings, men, women, monks, nuns, children, old people, young people, healthy people, sick people, householders, the whole range, in all kinds of conditions. And what we have of the Buddha's teaching to all of these beings in all of these situations is a map. A map pointing to what the Buddha discovered. The way to awakening, the way to freedom, happiness, peace, however you understand that. We teachers who are teaching here, leading this retreat, we also use the Buddha's map. We may be using different editions of the map, but we're all using the Buddha's map. And given our own personal predilections, we've taken slightly different routes to understand where the Buddha's teaching is pointing us. Generally, we can say of the Buddha's teaching that it's divided into three sections. The first is the talks and the discourses that he gave to the monks and nuns and the lay people, the suttas, using very general language and the situations that they were in, in order to point the way for them to discover in that moment freedom or liberation, understanding, awakening in their life. A second part of the Buddha's teaching is called the vinaya, or the compilation of the rules for the monks and the nuns to live the holy life, to live a life dedicated to uh, awakening. And it's interesting and fascinating, and there's some extraordinary stories in there of things that people would do and the Buddha would comment on. The third area, or the third chunk of the Buddha's teaching is 
the Buddhist psychology. And it's a very sophisticated and elaborate description of the map of the mind arrived at through introspection, through meditation, using very precise, very specific language in order to describe the experience that any being has at any time. It's comprehensive. It covers all beings, all times, all conditions. We might say that it's exhaustive in both its macroscope and its microscopic level, encompassing world systems of time, the creation and destruction of whole uh, world systems. And at the microscopic level, being able to describe the minute sequence of consciousness in the mind in each second, the millions of moments of consciousness that flow by in a lifetime. And this exhaustive micro-macro description of life is accomplished through an analysis of the constituent elements of each moment's experience, a description of their synthesis in each moment's experience, and an understanding of their dynamics and how they operate throughout time. And as such, the Abhidhamma or the Buddha psychology is a reservoir of the knowledge of millions of people who have practiced this practice over the last 2,500 years. It is a tremendous resource for we who are on the path of awakening. When I first started practice some 20 years ago, I fell into a retreat like this quite accidentally and and, uh, for the first 8, 10, 12 years, I just practiced, just did retreats and more retreats each year and listened to the Dharma talks and uh, didn't do much else. A little little daily practice, but I found it very difficult to read Dharma books. Just couldn't, didn't have any interest in it, didn't really get much from them, so I just practiced. And eventually I ended up in Burma and in a monastery and doing intensive practice like this for about four years and At one point in that period of time, I was given a book on the Buddhist psychology of the Abhidhamma, and I started reading it, and I opened it up and I just started reading. And initially it was a little bit difficult to get into reading after so much practice, but once I began to grok just what was in that book, it was like my whole life and everything I had ever experienced was laid out there whether it was the experiences of living family life, of growing up, or of deepest uh, dukkha or deepest bliss of meditation. It was all there. And it was laid out in a very precise, very clear language, generically. It wasn't my life story, but it was generic. 
And it just gave me a tremendous boost of confidence, clarity, and understanding that has supported my practice since that time. I want to share a little bit of that with you during this retreat. The Buddhist psychology is nothing that you haven't already heard in all of the Dharma talks. You know, the the hindrances, the factors of enlightenment, the faculties, mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, understanding. That's all it is. So it's really nothing new, nothing that you haven't heard. But in the Buddha's description of life and all of its processes and all of its experiences, in the Abhidhamma, they don't talk about me or I or even a person. It's all described in terms other than who we think we are. Now the Buddha's understanding and the Buddha's wisdom was a result of his own practice, of his own careful introspection and analysis and really understanding the way life was proceeding. For us, to hear the Buddha's teaching is just great theory, good knowledge, or maybe bad dogma. But that's all it is. It's not our wisdom. Until and unless we practice and confirm for ourselves through our own experience that indeed, that's the way it is. The Buddha said, do not believe in anything simply because you have heard it. Do not believe in tradition simply because it is handed down for many generations. Do not believe in anything because it is spoken and rumored to be true by many people. Do not believe in anything because it is found written in religious books. Do not believe in anything merely on the authority of your teachers or your elders. But if after observation and analysis, when you find that anything agrees with reason and is conducive to the good and benefit of one and all, then accept it and live up to it. The Buddha was quite clear. We must rely on our own experience. We must rely on our own understanding. We must rely on our own seeing and knowing for ourselves. We are responsible for our own happiness or unhappiness. There's no other responsible party. Conditions? Yes. Responsibility? No. How we understand our experience is vitally important. We all have similar experience. And some in this situation will be miserable, and others in this situation will be happy. How we understand this situation, any situation, is vitally important. I'll give you an example. I have, throughout my life, had kind of some kind of chronic uh, abdominal discomfort. And of course, early on, I went to an allopathic doctor 
And, you know, he took a stethoscope and this and a tool, the tool, uh, a stool test and, and things, and he came up with some diagnosis. And then I went to a uh, chiropractor, and he did some muscle testing and checking out this and that, feeling muscles, and he came up with a diagnosis. Then I went to an acupuncturist, and she uh, took my pulses, you know, looked in the, my eyes, and uh, mumbled something about the fire meridian. Later I went to a, a therapist, and she tried to get me to talk about the first time I ever felt this discomfort. Later I went to a Chinese herbalist. He looked in my eyes, checked out my skin, took my pulses, and told me to eat cooler food. I went to a nutrition specialist. Nutrition specialist. She said, you're combining your food wrong. Don't eat your fruit with your vegetables. I went to a Burmese doctor when I was in Burma. He had me lay down, put a cigar between my big toe and the next toe. Checked my nerves, gave me some medicine, take two in the morning, call me if you don't feel any better. I went to a crystal healer. She laid me down, laid crystals all over my body, mumbo jumbo. You know what? I still have that discomfort. How they understand it didn't, didn't do me all that much good. In the meantime, though, I also took up meditation, mindfulness. And even though I have this discomfort, so what? What's the big deal? I can live with it and not make my life miserable for it. The Buddha encouraged observation and analysis that if not unreasonable, if it agrees with reason, if it is for the benefit of all, one and all, then live with integrity, with that understanding. Look into your own life. Look at it carefully. Analyze it. If it agrees with your reason, if it's for your benefit and the benefit of others, then don't deny it. Acknowledge it, accept it, live with it. As the Buddha was close to his parinibbana or his great passing away, he said to the assembly of monks around him, you should live as an island unto yourself, being your own refuge, with no one else as your refuge, with the Dhamma, is an island and a refuge. And those who live like this will attain the highest. When you trust in your own experience, when you understand your own experience, then we can attain that which the Buddha was pointing to. Freedom, peace, happiness. The Buddha's teaching, the Buddha's map, begins with this very moment. What is it? <laughs> 
what can we discover about this very moment? Without analysis, without speculation, without rationalization, comparison, or even reference to the books, what can we discover about this very moment by merely self-witnessing for ourselves? Any moment. The most obvious but the most difficult thing to see is that we know something about this moment. We know, we know something, and we know it in a certain way. These three qualities are ever-present in our life. When we look, when we look deeply, the mind or knowing, the awareness, consciousness is present. The quality of knowing, whether it's clear or dull, exciting, boring, uh, heavy or light, is also known. And what is known is also known. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, planning. We already have a pretty big catalog, just from this one week of practice, of what is known, how it's known, in different ways of knowing. We don't have to think about this experience to know it. We merely have to attend to it, to look, to notice. This is the amazing experience of the mind, awareness or knowing. And maybe not surprisingly, what we know doesn't interfere with the fact of knowing. Whether it's Exciting or boring, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. The knowing still happens. With some continuity of observation, we can see that this whole process of life, from the moment we're born till the moment we die, and if you believe in it, born again, is nothing but a whole series of knowing one moment after the next. Rapidly fluxing continuum of knowing. When we understand all that can be known, when we know all that can be known, when we can see how it operates in each moment, the conditional nature of it operating in each moment, we can begin to alter the course of our life. We can begin to step back, make choices, and not only decondition the momentum of our habits, but change conditioning per se. Not just change how we're going, but change the fact of going. It's really important to recognize that the nature of the mind is constantly fluxing. It's arising and passing away, moment after moment after moment. Because of this, because of this dynamic, 
ever-changing, living process that we are, we can change. The mind can change. Its results, its effects, its conditions change. That change, that momentum of the mind, of course, is conditioned by external conditions, internal conditions. And here on retreat, it's important to pay attention to both internal and external conditions. The silence, the quiet, the beauty, like-minded others. These are the external conditions that support the degree of observation necessary to awaken. Internal conditions, energy, determination, integrity. These are the internal conditions. There's many more. We'll speak of them. To monitor, to to keep a, a check on that are necessary for awakening. With this fluxing nature of the mind, our life is a constant reaping of the results of past conditions and actions and a sowing of the seeds for future (coughs) conditions. It's an alchemy of life, taking what we're offered, doing something to it, re-experiencing it in the future. Transforming ourselves along the way. And with that alchemical action that life is, we can awaken. We have the potential to awaken. If things weren't changing, we'd be fixed. That's it. No growth, no change, stuck. But because things are changing constantly, we can awaken, we can change, we can move, we can grow. We can see it in the macro level in our decision to come here. This is a choice that we make. We can see it at the micro level if today you've been paying attention to your intentions, that about-to moment that Joseph spoke about earlier today. A choice to move or not, to reach or not, to stand or not. These are the choices that transform our life. It's important to ask ourselves, what do I believe is the highest or the epitome of the spiritual life? What is the goal that I'm headed towards? We may have a general sense of a a path in life, but find it difficult to transpose that broad, life-encompassing idea into the present moment. What has this got to do with that? What does my spiritual life have to do with whether I can pay attention to the breath? It's important to be able to understand how practice leads to the broad goal in life that we consider our spiritual objective. 
to use an example. Traditionally or habitually, if we see someone that we feel attracted to, quite naturally we gravitate towards them. We want to get close. We want to touch them. We want to hear them. We want to see them physically, emotionally, mentally. We begin to consider how to do that, how to uh, get what we want, how to uh, plan to satisfy our desires. And we will persist in that scheming and planning and you know, adjusting of our life until we get what we want, or until it's frustrated, or until it's no longer available, or we lose interest. And what happens in that moment of seeing someone, what happens to determine whether we're free or not? Whether we are awake or not? In its basic outline, what occurs at that moment, and please understand that not only in seeing someone, but in every sight, every sound, every thought, every smell, the same or similar process is happening. In that moment, it's very similar to a match being struck against a matchbox giving rise to a flame. Hmm? In this case, the visible object, that person, strikes against our eye sensitivity and it ignites seeing consciousness. Or a sound comes against our ear sensitivity and ignites hearing consciousness. The ignition of seeing or hearing occurs due to the contact between these three elements, the eye, the object, and the consciousness. Like the flame that's produced with the contact between the match, the box, and the striking, that flame can be used for beneficial purposes, or it can wreak havoc in a huge conflagration. So too, with that seeing that occurs with contact. If that seeing is understood as it really is, we're safe. If that seeing is not attended to carefully, we can burn with longing, desire, uh, frustration, for that which was seen. Since we can't shut our senses off, we can't walk around with closed eyes all the time, we can't shut our ears off, we can't not feel with our skin. We can see that without careful attention to each moment's arising, we will, as K.D. Lang so accurately acknowledges, constantly crave. This is why on retreat we ask that you really guard your senses. Maybe we haven't used that term, but we uh, imply it by not looking around, not writing, not talking, not reading, really guarding what comes in to your mind through the sense doors. Because the more we take in, the more proliferation of thoughts. 
the less we take in, the more we can let our uh, thinking mind settle down. Without current or uh, current stimulation, there's plenty of memories within the mind. You don't have to don't have to fear for any lack of something to think about. My teacher used to say that uh, memories are like uh, film negative, you know. And when we get uh, nothing else to do, we just start developing pictures, you know. And we start playing with developing a whole album of things from the past, from those negatives that we keep stored. When, <coughs> excuse me. When we are aware of seeing as it's happening, we can be aware of the pleasant feeling that is evoked within us, that is associated with that seeing of that person. And that pleasantness will be there for as long as seeing occurs. But even when we stop seeing that person, our tendency is to continue reflecting about that person, what we have seen. And in that reflection, even though the person is no longer present, in that reflection, that pleasant feeling is again stimulated. But along with that pleasant feeling stimulated with thinking is a sense of I. I like. I feel. I want. Reflection like that is a source for the sense of self, the sense of I. When we look closer at what's actually happening in that moment of contact between visible object, the I base, and consciousness, when we look more closely, we can see how this I is constructed, how this sense of I is constructed. I've already mentioned that there's this contact between sense object, sense base, sense consciousness. There's the feeling of pleasantness, or there may be unpleasantness. There's the recognition that seeing's happening. If we look closer, we'd also see that there is a choice to look, or a choice to attend to, to direct our attention towards that one person, that one object, which indicates that there's some activity in the mind. What I've just identified are the seven attributes of the mind which are present in every moment of experience. Contact with an object, feeling of pleasantness, unpleasantness, or neutrality, recognition of seeing happening, hearing happening, thinking happening, choice or volition, attention to attend to that experience, a singling out of one object out of the multitude in our environment, and activity, the fact of life, change within the mind. After all, a corpse wouldn't be the least bit interested in the most beautiful person to walk by. There's no life there. And yet we are. There's life here. And all this happens due to conditions. 
Not because I'm in there directing the show or I'm in there asking for it to happen. Because of these conditions, knowing occurs, pleasantness occurs, attachment, clinging, liking occurs automatically. There's no one making it happen, just as there is not a flame inside that match before it is struck. But due to the conditions of match, of box, of movement, there's flame. Due to conditions, a person, an eye, a life, contact, there's feeling, there's choice, there's knowing. In the discourse on <clears throat> right understanding, the Buddha said, there are four kinds of nutriment for the sustenance of beings. The first is food to sustain the body. And the next three are mental for sustaining the mind. They are sense contact, choice or volition, and awareness or consciousness. Our very sense of ourself comes from feeding on these four things, food, contact, choice, and knowing. Our very sense of who we are is none other than that. Our choices, our knowing, our food, what we eat, this body, and the contact we have with life around us. When we look into our own life, when we look into our life today, can we see how hungry we've been for contact, for stimulation, for some choice, for knowing something other than this? It's there. When we look, we see how hungry our body and our mind is for contact, for stimulation knowing. <clears throat> when, <coughs> excuse me. One yogi came in for an interview today complaining, just unbelievable, about how uh, judgmental he was, how much he was uh, disliking himself and the habits of his mind. He was just, oh, just, just ready to leave. He said if he had a car, he would have gone. But his house was sublet. He didn't know what he was going to do. He was just ready to go. And I said, oh, Good. I can see your mindfulness is getting better. And he said, how do you know? And I said, because you can see your tendencies. You can now see the nature of your mind. And I'm sure he's not the only one. Probably most of you are seeing the nature of your mind more clearly. I said, the only problem is you don't like it. <laughs> that's, that's okay. So far. You know, we'll get to that later. At least, we're, at least the mindfulness is getting better so that we can see. And this is the first part, this is the first uh, quality uh, of this type of practice, is we begin to wake up, we begin to open up to what's really going on. In the process, we're going to learn how to bring it into balance, but that's, that's coming. Our habit of creating an I, a me, out of experience, 
is tremendously deep, tremendously strong. The, 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 the habit is strong. The delusion or the illusion is multi-layer deep. The miracle of mindfulness is that it can dispel that illusion in a single moment. Temporarily. For that moment, we can dispel the illusion when we know, when we see clearly what's happening. Seeing is happening. It could be an illusion, but I might as well try to be mindful, to see through this sense of self. How does it work? We know that mindfulness is this real careful uh, participatory observation concurrent with experience. We know that it's being present for life now. And in this example that I've used about seeing, there's the object, there's the eye, there's the seeing consciousness. We can, when mindful, tune in to any one of these. And in fact, we're giving you instructions that kind of allow you to pick your own, pick your, make your choice. You know, in this settled back, open, receptive uh, instruction, more likely than not, we tune into or we become mindful of knowing. Knowing seeing, knowing hearing, knowing sensation. Uh, in the very precise uh, direction of attention, we tune into this sensation, that sensation, this thought, that thought. We notice the object. And sometimes, some of us are sensitive enough to actually feel the contact of the object with our eye, with our ear. You know, when someone comes in, or when there's a loud noise, that contact we can feel on the ear. So we can when mindful, tune into either the knowing, the object, or the contact with the sense base. You don't have to look for just one. The choice isn't all yours. But if any one of them become known, then mindfulness happens. And in that mindfulness, there is the implicit recognition of the other three, or the other two elements. So these seven elements that appear in each moment Contact, feeling, recognition, choice, uh, attention, concentration or single-pointedness in this life, they happen automatically in every moment. We can tune into any one of them. The choice to see, the choice to feel, the choice to think. Some of you already come in when the mind is still and ex- can, can describe with some clarity how when the mind is still, there's the impulse to think before the thought happens. Did you recognize that? That we have a choice to think. Hmm. But in the case of paying attention, noticing in each moment, noticing this sight, this, this, this person that we feel attracted to, what we notice is the pleasant feeling. And due to the rapid nature of the mind, and our continued gazing on that person, the whole body might be filled with pleasant feelings, lightness, tingling, uh, very uh, semi-erotic feelings. 
and the whole mind is filled with joy and happiness and lightness and longing. And so we get a very strong hit of pleasantness. At other moments, or in continued moments of looking, seeing, noticing that, we may notice the urge for a second look, or a decision to look again, or to sustain our gaze. We may notice uh, moving back and forth between the person seeing the object and the fact of seeing itself. We may notice and feel removed from that other person, feel isolated, contained within ourselves, distant from them. There may be an aching in the eye due to continued looking. Any one of these. (laughs) Check it out. What do you think stress is? Stress, overstimulation of the senses. (laughs) Pay attention. When we pay attention, this is what we see. How the body gets worn out, how the mind gets worn out, how we get tired. Throughout our lives, we are constantly bombarded by senses, by stimulation. If we don't pay attention, or when we don't pay attention, we get stressed, we get caught up in who we are, who those conditions make us become. When we're mindful, and we can see it, we can begin to see it in our practice, when we're mindful of all of those moments of seeing, of hearing, of smelling, of tasting, of touching, of thinking, the sense of I becomes thin, becomes weak, becomes uh, so ephemeral, so evanescent, so just dissipates like the fog in the morning when the sun comes up. And this happens not only with pleasant experience, it happens with unpleasant experience too. Had an example of this in Burma. I'd been in the monastery for a few years and there was another monk there who, also from America, another Western monk, American monk, and I was really annoyed by him. He had the habit of liking to talk. And I was really into my practice. I really wanted to be diligent, or I really wanted to practice. And this monk, every day he would come talk to me. He'd come to my room, he'd come to me standing in the meal line, after meals, anywhere. He just would talk. How's your practice going? How's his practice going? Did you get any mail from States today? I got a letter from the States today. You know. So I had to try. Maybe you know someone like this here that's already got your number. So, politely I told him not to speak to me. No effect. So, I judged him as just being insensitive and uncaring and bad person for not keeping the rules. So, I, I tried to limit him to the amount of time that he could talk. I tried to limit the times he could come talk to me, you know, only around mealtimes. I refused to listen to him. I just said, I haven't got time. He still came. When he came, I would walk away from him. He would walk alongside. Keep talking. <laughs> I forced myself to be patient and endure, standing there, enduring his barrage, to his talking at me. I did loud mental noting of standing while he talked. Standing, standing, standing. <laughs> I stared angrily at him, trying to make him feel ashamed. I sent him meta. 
I listened very carefully to what he was saying. I responded minimally. I didn't respond at all. Nothing worked. I was still angry. I was still irritated. I was frustrated. He was spoiling my practice. Finally, I just had to give up and notice what was actually happening. I felt crappy. It just felt bad. My body felt tight and tense and hot and nervous and anxious. My mind felt angry and frustrated and irritated and disappointed and judgmental and critical. And besides that, I was just standing there having to endure it. And when I noted all that, it was okay. It's just feeling irritable. It's just hearing unpleasantness. It's just feeling and being critical. And when you just stand there and let this kind of come in and go through, it's over when it's over. You can walk away. You don't carry it around with you all day. I hate that guy. I should hate that guy. He destroyed my practice yesterday. I still hate him. Mm. This mindfulness. Just being present with things as they're happening. Just being present with the mind, the, the pleasantness, the unpleasantness, the thoughts, the feelings, the sensations, the judgments, the criticism, the anger. Our mindful, being mindful of that can free us from the burden of who we think we are can free us from constructing this sense of I, can allow us to actually be free in this moment. And that's powerful conditioning for future uh, moments of mindfulness, to begin to get a taste of freedom, brief but tangible. And when we can follow this pointing of the Buddha, when we can follow the map to get to this experience, to see for ourselves in this moment that freedom is possible, that awakening is possible for me, for us, for you, then we can continue on the path with confidence, with clarity. We can feel that it's possible, that it's passable, that it's probable. Maybe we should sit for a couple of minutes to let this word settle down in the mind. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.